Hello and welcome to another edition of Childhood Remastered. This is the podcast where we look back on the cartoons and movies and TV shows and whatnot of our youth to see if they're still worth a damn. Or not. Or not, which is far too often the case. I am Sean. And I'm Chris. And today we're taking a little break from the requests because I had a request. It was a movie that uh, I think we've talked about a few times and I just thought, why not do it? And frankly, Sean hasn't made a request in, in a while. So it was due. It was his turn. I was taking my co-host prerogative. And that movie was Return to Oz. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. You share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. Now, Return to Oz has a special place, I think, in a lot of people's hearts because it's a movie that terrified them as a child. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a little bit of a mindfuck of a movie. Yeah, this, this movie falls into that sort of category of 80s movies that was rated PG but, at the time because there wasn't a PG-13 rating. Maybe, or, no, was no, there was a PG-13 rating, PG-13, but, but in, in if, today's world, I don't... Yeah, this would have been a PG-13 movie, I feel like, if it was re- if it was released today. There's just a well, lot of dark just, themes. I'd say borderline dark yeah. themes. It's borderline, but, you know, child, children of the 80s would definitely consider this, like, a solid PG. Yeah, this was... Like, a, this is a solid, like, Goonies or whatever, you know... Labyrinth, like, yeah, Dark Crystal yeah. type of, like, this is really scary and dark, but also, yeah, it's a kid's movie. Yeah, exactly. So, Return to Oz is a fantasy adventure film, originally released June 21st, 1985 in the U.S. and July 10, 1985 in the U.K. The movie has a runtime of 113 minutes. It earned 2.8, roughly, million dollars in its opening weekend, finished in seventh place. It ultimately grossed 11.1 million in North America. But with a budget of $28 million, it's widely considered a box office bomb. Mm-hmm. The plot centers around Dorothy suffering from insomnia, and she, uh, along the journey of the film, then returns to Oz and find out that its inhabitants are facing uh, a sort of max mass extinction, and she decides to try and save Oz with the help of some new compatriots. Yeah. So with that said, uh, we'll get into more of the film in a minute. What do you remember of this movie? Uh, I remember what most people remember. I remember the wheelers, which were terrifying because they wear these they wear these helmets. So if you don't know what a wheeler is, a wheeler is takes the place of the flying monkeys, and they're actually in the book. They are in the book. So they take and in the, several books. Actually. Yeah, they take the place of the flying monkeys from the from the original film. Um, not they're they're not replacing them. They're just taking their like sort of functional place in yes. the book. And uh, imagine. Imagine a man on hands and feet, but his but his arms are as long as his legs, and his feet and hands are replaced with giant wheels. And so they skate around, and they wear these helmets that have these horrifying 
masks, masks that can get pulled over their face. Yeah. Well, it's not even on their face. It's the helmet. It's the top part of the helmet. So they ride with oh, their, yes, face when their down. Oh, yes, their face is down, then it looks and like... And it, yeah. it looks like a scary face coming at them. So I remember that. I remember Princess Mombi, who has... Uh, she has rooms full of severed heads that are alive because she's magic and she takes one head off and puts another one on. I remember, I remember that. Um, I remember the characters like TikTok. I remember the movie being interesting to me, but also being really kind of scary because you have all these. It, it's not like it's not like the original. It's not like the original Wizard of Oz where it was people in costumes. I mean, this was people in costumes, but it was also a lot of like puppetry in this one. And there's some stop motion animation with some claymation stuff yeah. in there too. And, and so it's and it's just it's just generally darker in tone. Well, than and the also if you the cinematography, the lighting yeah. is different. Well, I'll just, I remember liking it, but but being not notice, sure, like yeah. like it's scary, but I kind of like it. Not but sure it, yeah. if if you were terrified or not. Yeah, I think I was terrified, but I liked it anyway. I, I would say that the the lighting of films in general during that time uh, was rather similar. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, the lighting in films throughout the 1980s had a sort of darker tone, uh, darker shadows, a, a sort of like hint of film noir, not much. But a very just sort of slight hint where the the visuals always sort of felt dark. Maybe it was just the time period. I don't know if that was just a stylist, a common stylistic choice. Yeah, but, I'm not sure. But for me, I, I remember seeing the movie. I don't remember too much of it other than the Wheelers and uh, Mombi either. Oh, and I, I do remember Jack Pumpkinhead and and I remember the, the moose head that was on the, the couch. Gump. The gump. Yeah, that, that they flew around on. And that's about what I... I just remember that it was like Oz was in shambles and that's about it. I don't remember much, but I remember seeing it, I think, on home video. I don't yeah, think... Yeah, I didn't see this in the theater at all. Well, no, because we would have been like, yeah, you know, two, two years old. But we, I think, definitely saw it maybe on TV. I think yeah. it was on, on a Disney Channel thing like where it played uh, as part of a Sunday night movie. Yeah, fun, I, fun I think fact. So. This is the this is the direct sequel with the longest amount of time between the original movie and the sequel. No kidding. Yeah, because the huh. original this, this is considered a direct sequel to the original Wizard of Oz, which came out in 1939, well, and this movie came out yeah. in 1985. So I, that's 46 years. Do in you between. think that that's a? I mean, it's an actual direct sequel because. They're two different properties. Yeah, it's considered a sequel though because because it, it continues the story from the original. Well, it, it, I guess if you think about it in the realms of the book, although this movie sort of borrows, it's mostly stuff from the second book, but with characters from the first and the third book. Because yeah. Dorothy's not in the second book. Yeah, it's she, another character. Yeah, it's Tip. Also, the ruby slippers don't exist in the actual books. Yeah. That is from the MGM property. Yeah. So silver didn't sh silver slippers, which were in the books, didn't really show up very well. They wanted to utilize a new Technicolor, right, right, or whatever it was. Well, I don't know if it was Technicolor, but they wanted to utilize the new tech, the new color filming to show off the ruby slippers instead of the silver slippers. Exactly. So, with all of that said, uh, Disney purchased the film rights to the Oz books back in the 1950s. This movie was made by Disney. They never used that those film rights. However. So I guess I guess this would be a direct sequel because Disney purchased the rights. I well, they purchased the rights to the books from the Frank L. Baum uh, family, mm -hmm. not from MGM, because MGM didn't have the rights to. 
Well, I think they had the rights to some of them, and then they purchased those rights also. Yeah. So maybe it is a sort of sequel, half yeah. not. But they they purchased the the rights, and then this was their only usage of the property. And as soon as this film was made, the rights reverted to public domain, mm-hmm. which is sort of why I think there hasn't been too much. Uh, there's been a couple made of, in, in regards yeah. to the Wizard of Oz. There's been a franchise. couple of like animated movies that have been made. I know that there was one that I remember watching on like Netflix called Tin Man, that was based off of. Uh, the Oz characters. There was that damn movie with James Franco. We were talking about it, Kathy and I, the other night. Oh. Uh, the Oz the Great and Powerful with oh, James, right, right, James right. Franco and Yes, Mila I remember Kunis. that now. Yeah. It wasn't great. It was not great. No, by any stretch. No. Uh, <laughs> there was also that made-for-TV movie that was on sci-fi a while back as a miniseries called Tin Man, I Oh, think. that's the one I was talking about. I watched it on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, Tin Man. It yeah, was, that's another one. It was a yeah. more, it was, it was a more like dark and broody it, it one. It had a sort of post-apocalyptic type thing. Oh, no, I was going to say it, it was a more almost steampunk-ish Yeah, because the Tin variant. Man was, instead of being a Tin Woodsman, he was like some kind of cop or something. Yeah, it was something ridiculous. Yeah, so the the, the story itself is based off of a bunch of books. Uh, it was uh, based off of about 40 books that Frank yeah, Baum... So, yeah, so here's the thing about the books. So Frank L. Baum wrote the first 14 books. And... Then there were some other books that were canon that uh, are accepted by the Frank L. Baum sort of family, the the trust, and that were published at, after his death as, I think, 26, after the first 14. And then there's some other side books, like the book uh, that's that was then turned into a musical Wicked. Right. Well, so that, that, those are considered yeah, non-canonical. But yeah, Wicked is considered, and I think it's even billed as a. It's billed as a uh, alternate al- telling, alternate yeah. yeah history. It's like it's like a it's like a, a historical fiction, right? In the in the world of, of, in the world of Oz. Yeah, because you know what's funny is so if you don't know, and I know we're getting off topic, but I don't care. If you if you've never seen or at least have read like because there's a book that was turned into a play. And there's actually three books in that Wicked series. It's like Wicked and then Son of a Witch and then something about the lion, I think, is the third book. Uh, but if you've if you've never if you've never seen it or read the book, uh, it the, the book in the in the movie or the, the Broadway show sort of turned the wizard into like a bad guy. It turns it into like a dictator that's, you know, I think in the book he's trying to kill all the animals that are that speak because that right. like it's you know it's not the natural order animals shouldn't speak. Well, and, and all in that. the original Frank L. Baum books, there is the so Ozma is the the sort of princess of yeah. of Oz, and her father was king before the wizard came. Yeah, and then the wizard came and sort of was a sort of dictator, but he was like a happy, friendly dictator from Kansas. Yeah, and and I was doing a lot of reading and <laughs> about this. I stayed up way too late one night after I. After I watched this movie, and the uh, the thing in the sort of mythos of of Oz is that the rulers of Oz have either always been known as either Oz if they were a man or Ozma if they were a woman, and so when he came in and said that his name was Oz because his name is Oscar Zoroaster and then a bunch of other names, he's got like seven names and then it ends with with uh, Diggs, and his name actually spells out Oz Pinhead, so he just goes by Oz because he doesn't want to use all of his initials. 
So because his name was Oz and Oz was on the balloon because that's how he built himself, they assumed that he was a ruler. Right. And they were like, oh, okay, yeah, you're, you're, you're a king. And sort of took over from the young princess. Yeah, but, whatever. What, but what I read was that, uh, that Bomb was actually that, the, that people sort of started writing stuff about the wizard, about how he was bad and how he sort of like took over. The, the, they thought that the books were political commentary. Yeah. And that there was like religious and political undertones. And he said essentially that the books were written for children. And I don't know what to well, tell you. Well, the actual character, I think he, he got upset or he wanted to clarify stuff about the character of the wizard. That he wasn't this like evil usurper. So he actually had the wizard come back in later books to be a advisor to Ozma. And not be this like this maniacal dictator who right. was just like just deposing the 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 rulers of Oz. He was just he's a guy that came into a weird situation, took advantage of it, and now he's back to like help out. Right. So he came back later on in the books, which the whole point of like the the wicked books in the and the play is that the wizard is like a bad guy. Right. Which so. is uh interesting, I guess. Uh yeah. the, the 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 movie that we watched though is actually based off of, as I mentioned, the second and the third book. So the second book uh, is called The Marvelous Land of Oz. It was published in 1905. Mm -hmm. And it takes place like right after Dorothy left Oz. And it's actually based upon this orphan boy from Oz named Tip. And the Wheelers are in that book. Now, the story itself is sort of more broadly based off of Ozma of Oz, which is the third book, which was published two years later in 07. And... The story is supposed to take place like five years after the original Dorothy Oz story. Mm -hmm. And and it takes place mostly outside of Oz with Oz being more like the sort of destination, which is sort of the feel that we get here because although it sort of quote takes place in Oz, it doesn't really because Oz has changed. Yeah. And so the Oz that she knew is sort of the destination. It's sort of like interesting way to sort of tell the story. Yeah. And as we mentioned before, this is based off of Frank L. Baum, or rather L. Frank Baum. And yeah, fun story, he he went by Frank because he hated his first name. Right. Which was, I think, his father's name, Lyman. Which is why it's abbreviated. It's yeah. L. Frank. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in 1856, died in 1919. He wrote 14 Oz books, 41 other novels, 83 short stories, and over 200 poems and 21 scripts. His writings are sort of usually considered futurist in nature. Oh yeah, no, he he predicted he he's like uh, he's like uh, Jules Verne. He's like Jules Verne in right. that he predicted a bunch of stuff, like laptops and wireless like phones and uh, advertising on clothing mm -hmm. and TV and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Now I pointed this out. I thought this would be sort of interesting, sort of point of discussion. The thing is, is as a person himself he was a sort of as is most the, most of the time the case historical figures it's just people in general are not cut and dry good or bad they have good and bad to them and to 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 sort of illustrate that bomb both was a huge advocate for women's suffrage and the right for women to vote yeah as well as a wholesale supporter of genocide of the American indigenous people. So yeah. he was like, yay, women vote, kill all the Indians. Yeah. Well, I mean, I be, mean, he's sort of a product of his time because yeah. it was the 1890s when he wrote. And he was his, writing, he was writing in response to the, the killing, battle of wounded knee. Yeah. The battle of wounded knee and the killing of sitting bull. And he was arguing that, that essentially they need, they shouldn't have stopped there. Should have killed them all. Yeah. Basically they, that, it was, that for white settlers to be safe, they should kill all the Indians. Sort problematic argument yeah and the reason that he was the reason that he was considered a feminist and considered a uh 
and considered oh, a, he, a, an he advocate. He held meetings for women's suffrage movement. Well, helped it, to like pay for organizations yeah, for and, it. And, and, and the reason that it, that was is because his wife and his mother-in-law were big advocates for women's suffrage. And so he just sort of was adopted like, that. Yeah. And I think, but one, he did go out of his way too. If you think about his writings, like Dorothy is a sort of like, uh, like feminist store, uh, a feminist heroine. Yeah. And I think, right? I think I read at some point that like Susan, not Susan B. Anthony, cause that would have been way too old. Um, there was, there were uh, prominent like suffragettes that would, that would come and he'd host things at his house because, uh, because fundraisers yeah. and events. And... Cause Frank Baum came from uh, his, his, uh, he had financial troubles throughout his life. Um, not always, but they, they would pop up from time to time because he was, he was sort of bohemian and, and like, like Chris said, with all the stuff that he wrote, he was an actor and he was a, a writer and he did all this stuff and he really enjoyed theater and writing and writing scripts and doing all this stuff. And he, he started, uh, he, he produced a lot of plays and producing those plays and putting on those plays and opening playhouses was kind of what drained a lot of his, his uh, personal wealth. And he would end up going back to like more mundane jobs, like being a clerk at a dry goods right. store or he something. He would just go back and forth. But his, his family... That like his upbringing was in a really well-to-do area of like upstate New York, and he had a lot of money growing up, which is I think why he was able to pursue these passions that he that probably most people in the in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies didn't have eighteen nineties, like yeah, didn't have the time yeah. for. You know, when he was growing like at, at ten years old, he I think he started like a uh, a newspaper with his brother. Like at their family estate. Yeah, in the eighteen sixties he started a newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Which is nuts. So I put a link in our notes here to this scholarly article written in nineteen ninety by Professor Robert Venables, who was head of the uh, one of the uh is I think actually head chair of one of the departments at Cornell. And he published this paper in nineteen ninety, sort of dissecting the American indigenous people genocide thing uh further. And it's actually a really fascinating read if you want to go and and read it's, it's sort of angering and, and sad and and the reason why I want to put it in there and the reason why I wanted to mention it is one to illustrate that historical figures are both complicated and and not always um, clean and easy to discuss. Yeah, because we were talking about when when we were talking about this. There's plenty. Like yeah, Disney you, and Seuss and Doll yeah, and all Seuss, of these other people. Yeah, Doctor Seuss, if you don't know, uh, was sort of a Nazi sympathizer a little bit. Or at least uh, he was anti-Semitic. Yeah, uh, and then there, you, there's yeah, and Lewis Doll has Carroll, had problems. Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll yeah. was, had a lot of portraits of naked uh, naked children, and I think the the guy yeah. J M Barry who created Peter Pan had really weird relationships with kids. So yeah, I mean the thing is, is there's a lot of people in history that are sort of beloved, but also complicated. It's yeah. like you know the the sort of. The sort of way that, and we discuss this a little bit with Captain EO in that Michael Jackson, for a while, I think, has been a sort of complicated figure. Although now it's even sadder because now we know he didn't do anything, which makes it even worse because people treated him like crap and that if, as if he did. But, you know, the, the, the reason, the other reason why I wanted to put this link in here was because there's been some argument and some reading online, and you and I discussed this a little bit in text, is that Baum has been argued that that was actually uh, satire that he was writing. Yeah, he was that, writing in hyperbole. That he was something. writing in hyperbole I don't think to illustrate he, a point. Yeah, I don't think he ever argued that. I think other people were arguing people it on his behalf. People post-death were trying to argue it on his behalf, like 80 years later. Yeah. Like, in this, especially in the 1970s when the big indigenous people's movement sort of, like, started cropping up in the UN, uh, U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. There was this sort of resurgence of looking at 
anti-indigenous. And, and so he was sort of getting looked at and people were picking it apart and trying to argue that, no, no, he's a beloved author and he's, he was using hyperbole, but really if you look at it, it wasn't because there's like multiple times where that's not the case. So I just, I wanted to put that in there because it's sort of important to yeah. discuss. So let's, let's jump back into the to movie. To the movie itself. The, uh, the writers for this movie were Gil Dennis, uh, who had directed the film Without Evidence. He also wrote that movie and wrote On My Own and Walk the Line. And uh, also Walter Murch, who was the also the editor and sound designer. He was the editor for Godfather and American Graffiti and did some design, sound, some sound design for uh, Apocalypse Now. Right. Um, now he, uh, Walter Murch, actually also directed this movie. He was not the editor and sound designer for this movie. It's just sort of what he's mostly known for. Oh, okay. but, but he did the, the, the directing for this movie. Yeah. Production companies here are Walt Disney Pictures and produced by Paul Maslansky. And if I don't think we need to give any description of Walt Disney Pictures. I think we know who they are yeah. at this point. Like, really. Music is David Shire, uh, songwriter and composer. Soundtrack uh, for All the President's Men and Saturday Night Fever. Nice. He was also the piano accompanist for Streisand uh, for several years, actually. And... Had a rather significant career on Broadway, too. I, I didn't want to go too far into him because there's sort of a lot there. So we can either continue to discuss production if you want. Well, let's, talk about, let's talk about the characters that are the in The cast this, a bit? Yeah, the cast sure. and characters. So Dorothy Gale. And I, I have to say that I, I never read the books. And I know Dorothy in the books is supposed to be like a 10-year-old girl, I want to say. Like yeah, a 10 or, like 10 or 11-year-old girl. So it throws me when I think of the original... Wizard of Oz movie when you had Judy Garland playing at like Dorothy 15 and yeah she was like 15 16 years old and then in this movie you have Dorothy Gale who is supposed to be the know, actual post, age of yeah, right. she's like post Wizard of Oz movie right and yeah she it's played by Faruza Balk who is who is like 10 in this movie yeah so she uh Faruza Balk if you're not familiar uh she this was her film debut it was the first movie she was ever in um she is probably most famous I would think as the, the movie girlfriend the, from Waterboy the girlfriend from Waterboy yeah or I was gonna say the craft I thought I, I always remember her from and that the girlfriend movie. from American History X yeah yeah but she was also I put that in I put it in the notes the she was in the Island of Dr Moreau remake with Val Kilmer which is a really weird oh. project it, it in our in our show description or also in the notes, I put in part one and part two of a, of an interview with her. There's almost an hour long uh, in interview about this movie and, and some other stuff. It's actually really fascinating. Yeah. Now, uh, what happened? I watched what happens in the movie is that Dorothy has insomnia since she's been back from Oz. She can't sleep and she just keeps going on and on about Oz and her friends and going, she wants to go back and uh, aunt M and, um, what's the uncle Henry are, are kind of sick of it. And they take, they take her to this doctor who's played by the next person in the cast is Dr. Worley is played by Nickel Williamson. He's also the gnome King later on in, in yeah. the movie, just like in the first movie, how actors play dual roles, right? In the, how in the, the uncles film. played the yeah. line, which in the wardrobe. And the, the, yeah. or, I mean, uh, sorry, <laughs> switch that, reverse it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you had the you had the 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 farmhands who played like the the I think his name was Hunk, with the farmhand played played uh, the scarecrow. Yeah, and then you like had that. other ones that you know it, it, people matched up, and then the evil the 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 nasty woman from down the lane ended up being the the wicked witch. So you have this Doctor Worley who also plays the gnome king, or the the actor also plays the gnome king, and Doctor Worley is 
I guess I, I, at first I thought he was like a psychologist. I think he's like a turn of the century, like psychologist in, in the vein of Freud. Yeah. And he seems, you know? he seems like genuinely like he cares and he wants to help Dorothy. But this but... is also the time of like science quackery. Oh yeah. Where like they're, where they, their You've thought was. You've got ghosts in your blood. You so should do cocaine about it. Let's electrocute your brain. Yeah. And hope for the best. Yeah. So that, that's what. That'll he... drive out the evil spirits. <laughs> We're in the age of science. Yeah. It's and like, that's essentially, what? that's essentially the speech that he gives Aunt M is that, and Dorothy to an extent, he gives them both the speech about how he's got this machine that uses electricity because this is the age of science and uses electricity to help to help sort of rewire the brain so that she doesn't have these these dreams and these visions and help her sleep. It'll sort of, because he goes on this whole speech about how the We're brain is... We're entering a new age, a new century, the 20th century. Yes, you know, this is 1899, so... Will it hurt? Well, no, 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 no. It just manages electrical current. And your aunt already knows we are at the dawn of a new age. In just two months, it will be the year 1900. A new century. The 20th century. A century of electricity. The brain itself is an electrical machine. It's nothing but a machine. And when it malfunctions, a, uh, a blow to the head, for example, then the brain produces useless excess currents. And these excess currents are our dreams and Delusions. He's uh he's played by we're like I said like it's <laughs> We're gonna get diphtheria <laughs> and, and polio and cholera too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh like I said, he's played by Nicole Williamson who uh as an who uh So so Samuel Beckett once said that he was yeah. touched by genius. He's actually a rather beloved uh, actor yeah. and, and most of his career is actually more British cinema. But he has a very he has a very distinct voice. It's a very yeah. deep voice. Lots of Baptists. He's a very yeah. award winning uh, actor. But I remember him as Merlin from the nineteen eighty one Excalibur movie, mm-hmm. which I we've mentioned one or two times, just because I really love the nineteen eighties fantasy uh, film genre, like, like Excalibur uh, and what was that um, movie with Tom Cruise? Legend. Yeah, so Legend would be in there. Yeah, there's a lot of those from from that time period. Yeah. Like Conan and all these movies are, you know... That was sort of... I want to say that was sort of the, the start of the, like, fantasy genre. Well, in film. In film, yeah. It was a big... It was a big... They had a big boost in that. In yeah, decade... Early 80s. They tend to go through, like... So the 1960s was... So the 50s and the 60s was all, like, cowboys. science fiction. Well, cowboys and science fiction. Yeah. And then the 1970s was, oh, like, gritty. zombies and, and horror war, films. And were war like, films. And war films yeah. were, were more the, the earlier, so 40s. Yeah. As part of the sort of war propaganda stuff. Yeah. Uh, next week, I have some links and some fun stuff about that. Uh, we're going to discuss. Yay, like, war propaganda. Are, yeah. Oh, you have no idea. So let's continue with the next character, who is Nurse Wilson slash Mombi. She's actually a sort of composite of the characters Princess Lagwadir and the Wicked Witch Mombi from the books. They they took two characters and smushed them together. They sort of do that a lot in this Sort of, uh, yeah. In this movie, the, she is played by Jean Marsh. She is an Emmy Award winning actress in films like Frenzy, Cleopatra, The Changeling. And I wanted to mention that she's in Willow because she's Queen Bev Morta. And <laughs> I love Willow. And someday we're going to get to talk about Willow. Willow! Use, Willow! Use the wand! To 
Tuatha, Tuatha, Tuatha. Well, Nurse Wilson, so she sort of takes it. Nurse Ratchet ish. Yeah. But in Victorian dress. Yeah, it's sort of a combo of the the two, the two, there's two antagonists in this. Can I just add that she looks evil even when she's not trying to look evil? Well, I think it's just the way that the actress looks. I look other stuff up with her, and she just looks evil all the time. That's like like the actress that played the Wicked Witch in the original one, that she just kind of looked evil. Even when she wasn't in the Wicked Witch makeup. And I'm sure some of that was makeup and lighting and, and the way that they dressed her. But yeah, like you said, they dress Nurse Worley, in, or Nurse Wilson, sorry, in uh, in a very, very just stifling Victorian outfit. And at first I thought she was just sort of an assistant. I didn't know she was a nurse. And she is just, she isn't, she isn't outwardly evil as Nurse as uh, as Nurse Wilson, but she's she's like cold and uncaring, and it like yeah it's it, she's a weird character. But then the character of Mombi is at first you think that she is nice, but the Wheelers are afraid of her, so that's your first warning. And then you find out afterwards that she collects heads and that she imprisons Dorothy in the tower because she thinks that she's going to be very pretty when she's older, so she's going to age her for a little bit, like a piece of fine beef, and then she's going to lop off her head when she probably reaches like 15 or 16. Yeah, and a, little, then, a little dry age would be good for her. Yeah, a little dry a little dry age. The next character is Aunt M, who's played by Piper Laurie. Uh, she's been nominated for multiple Academy Awards for films like Carrie, The Children of a Lesser God, and The Hustler. And she was also in Twin Peaks as Catherine Martell. Uh, she has a m- f- fairly minor role in this. She takes she takes Dorothy to the to the insane asylum. Essentially, yeah. is where they take her. She's just essentially tired that that Dorothy has an imagination. She's yeah, just... and and she wants Dorothy to go. To, I thought it was funny at the beginning of the movie. Dorothy is sort of she's up and she's not asleep, and Aunt M comes up to talk to her or to see if she's asleep, and she's like, "Can't you sleep?" It's past one o'clock in the morning, Dorothy. Aunt Em? What, precious? I wish I could put my head on my paws and go to sleep like Toto. Soon you will. And then she goes back downstairs and Uncle Henry's still up. It's like, what the fuck are they doing up at one in the morning then? Right? That's what I was thinking. They're, they're farmers. Those people get up at like the crack of dawn, the ass crack of dawn. So like, what the hell? Um, but yeah, she's sort of, she's just like in the last movie, she's sort of, she's sort of pointless. She doesn't play another character in the movie. Uh, she just, she takes her to the insane asylum and then she's looking for her at the end. Because what happens at the insane asylum is the power goes out. They're essentially going to, they're going to take Dorothy in for her first electroshock therapy treatment. And the power goes out right before they do it. She gets let out of the uh the the table she's strapped to by a mysterious girl and then they run away and they get outside and then the lightning strike that caused the power outage actually is the forerunner to a giant rainstorm which i think is how the second book how she gets to, or the no. third book how she gets to oz so what happens in the third tip? no so in the so t- because tip is from oz yeah in the third book what happens is because there's a storm yes so what happens is in the third book, Uncle Henry has 
some sort of emotional problems where where he's got uh, anxiety, and the doctor prescribes that he go on a long trip for his anxiety. Oh, that's what it was. So he they take a ship to Australia, yeah. and the boat uh, is in is in some heavy seas, and she gets thrown overboard and lost at sea, and the book. That's how bo- she gets to yes, Oz. Yes, and in the book, she ends up back in Australia with with Uncle Henry, and they're just happy that they're, they, like, reunite, and it's just like, oh, yay, yeah. you're here. And so that can lead us, actually, to Uncle Henry. Uncle Henry. And I didn't put much in the notes, but I will say he is mostly a sort of character actor. He was in The Legend of the Lone Ranger in 1981, and he's in, like, Brubaker and all these things. He's not in the movie very long. no. But there's one thing that I wanted to mention him in because it's a, one of the, the film franchises that's my absolute favorite, and he's in Back to the Future Part 3. He is Chester, the bartender. Oh! Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which has a sort of funny uh, role in, in you, that movie. You know, you know what one of my favorite things about uh, Back to the Future 3 is? It's, there's, a, there's a character in the bar scene where, uh, where Doc is telling everybody about the future. And it's... It's a character that I want to say I recognized his voice from like Disney films. He's an old man sitting at the table and he's telling him about how where his voice so yeah. like this. And, and I always yeah. remember the line he says because he talks about like Doc is talking about horseless carriages and and being and running for fun. No, and, and he goes and he goes the the guy I'm remembering goes doesn't anybody walk or run anywhere anymore? Oh yes, they run. But for fun. And he's like, run for fun. <laughs> I don't know why I always remember that. I love that movie. I we're gonna we're gonna get to the back the Back yeah. to the Future series at some point too. The next character is the voice of TikTok, and it is Sean Barrett. He's an active voice actor. He was a goblin in Labyrinth, and the Dying Master and the Ritual Guardian, both in the Dark Crystal, and he voiced characters in uh the Dark Souls games. If you play Dark Souls, he's yeah, got a sort of prominent role in there. TikTok as a character sort of takes the place of the Tin Woodsman. He is known as the Army of Oz. It's he's a he's a mechanical man um who doesn't he is not alive. Uh he has three little uh wind-up keys on him. One winds up his mind, one winds up his voice, and the other one might winds up his his uh movement. And so that's sort of a it's sort of a, a plot device that at various times one of those, one or all of those will wind down and he won't be able to help out. He's actually a fairly competent army. Uh he takes he takes on and defeats all the wheelers that are chasing uh after after him and, and Dorothy. And he uh he was waiting for Dorothy in a in a cave somewhere that she opened with a key she found. And it's like a he, secret room. Yeah, and he was sent to find her by the Scarecrow, who is the King of Oz right now. And she just sort of blunders into him, and then they, they move on. It's the, first, it's the first companion that she finds. Can I say that his character is such a plot device crutch. Oh, no, it, it's it's literally, that's what his that was, that's what his point is, is that... No, no, what, what I mean is, is, so TikTok can't go anywhere without being wound. He's got, you have to wind up his brains and wind up his body for mm-hmm. him to be able to move. And it seems like just when, just when he's needed... He the, winds down. His brain winds down or his body winds down. And it seems like... If you were going to be sent off to accomplish a task, would you really want to pick the guy who can run out of juice before he gets halfway to where he needs to go? Well, Dorothy even says at one point, it's a shame that they didn't put these in a place where you could wind them yourself. Exactly. And I was thinking, 
who who designed him? Why would they have done that? Yeah. Well, I I looked up some other stuff about the characters because I started reading about just the characters. Right. Because each of those characters winds up with their own book at some point with those 40 other 40 odd books. Yeah. Jack Pumpkinhead has one. TikTok has one. Uh, shoot. I bet the, uh, I bet the freaking chicken has one, but that that's like a plot device in stories that involve him is that he runs out of juice, like right when they need him. And it's just like, rrr, 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 rrr. so yeah. convenient. Yeah, exactly. But nah, whatever. So the next character is the chicken Belina and the puppeteer because the chicken talks, because they're, the chicken in talks, because they're in Oz. The puppeteer here is Mac Wilson, who has done stuff like Labyrinth and Little Shop of Horrors and Dark Crystal and Muppet Treasure Island and The Adventures of Pinocchio. I don't know if you remember that. It's like a sort of semi-live action. With, no, I don't. Um, it's it's terrifying. It's semi-live action. It came out in 1996, and I believe it's the voice of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh, terrible. And Martin Landau's in it. It's not it's not great. I didn't terrible. put... As you know, it's not in the notes. Yeah. Don't ask me why I know terrible. that. Terrible. And then the next character... Well, it's it, voiced by uh, Denise Breyer. Yes, the next one is voiced by Denise Breyer. So, so Denise has done uh, some stuff for Disney. Uh, like, she was the junk lady in Labyrinth, and... And she's done some other stuff, and I. But but it's sort of like some weird uh, obscure stuff. Oh, she did some stuff for Doctor Who, I think. Also, yeah, but, so weird and, obs- weird yeah. and obscure. But it's fine, yeah. But the character of Belina is a chicken that that winds up lost with her, uh, in Oz. Just inexplicably is is in Oz with her. Gets lost in the big storm. It seems like they make her character disappear at one point, just mostly because they didn't want to pay for the animatronics. Yeah, and, and she spends she spends a good maybe third of the movie inside of Jack's head, Jack Pumpkinhead's head. And uh, she is also a plot device because her eggs or chicken eggs are poisoned to the Gnome King. So everyone's trying to get rid of the chicken because they don't want her anywhere near the Gnome King. Which we don't know. All we know is that he's afraid of chickens. Yeah, he's afraid of chickens. And she's just sort of a, she's just sort of a tag along. She's She's sort of there. She's she's like the Toto. uh, If uh, Toto could talk. Yeah, yeah. She, which which makes me wonder why Toto couldn't talk when he went to Oz. Well, I don't know, but she's she's lazy the, writing. Yeah, she's it was the also the thirties. So. Yeah, she's yeah. also so she's the Toto stand-in. She's the animal companion that goes around with Dorothy at like as she's meeting everybody. Now the next character, Jack Pumpkinhead, is puppeted by Brian Henson and Stuart Larange. Now, Brian and, and voiced by Brian Henson. So yeah. the uh, Brian Henson was a puppeteer that worked on Muppet Treasure Island, Babe, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, Labyrinth, and The Dark Crystal. But he is son of Jim and Jane Henson and currently the chairman of Jim Henson Company. We have discussed uh, Jim Henson and the Jim Henson Company before, Mm -hmm. but not so much Brian. Brian is a director and puppeteer, just sort of in general. He also did Little Shop of Horrors. If you watch Labyrinth, he's Hoggle. And, oh, okay. Yeah. He he directed them up at Christmas Carol and Muppet Treasure Island. He executive produced TV series like Dinosaur and Farscape and Bear in the Big Blue House. I love Farscape, by the way. Yeah. I love Farscape. Farscape is a good show. But the the character of Jack Pumpkinhead is is You looked at, some stuff up about him, right? Uh, yeah, I looked up a little bit of stuff. Uh, he, I originally had thought that for some reason I thought that he was the scarecrow. 
Like when I think when I first saw this, because like when we were kids, yeah, we, because that's what I remembered him be, as. But I had no idea he was a different character. Because essentially, that's what he is. He's a scarecrow with a big giant jack o' lantern head. And when Dorothy first meets him in the story, he's up in the in the tower where she's getting aged by Mombi, uh, and and he is all in pieces. He has to be put back together, which is what happens to the to the scarecrow a lot. She has to reattach his arms and his legs, and he, she checks his head for, for rot. And he is a character that, uh, in the book, in it's the made second by book, Tip. Tip makes him to scare Mombi because he's he's the prisoner of Mombi, the ward of Mombi. Mombi just makes him do a bunch of like like chores around the house. Indentured servant is sort of what he is. Right. And he, or not Mombi, but uh, what's it, Princess uh, Lith, Lithway or whatever her name is. The one that, that that's the one that can move heads is Princess Lith whatever, and she uh, so Tip creates Jack Pumpkinhead as a way to scare her, and then uh, she does get scared, and instead of instead of punishing Tip, which actually no she does punish Tip, but she tries out this powder of life on Jack because she had just bought it from another wizard. And she wanted to test it out. So maybe it was Mombi. I can't even remember. So many books. But she tests it out on, on Jack. And Jack comes to life. And she's like, okay, it works. And then she stuffs him up in the tower. And Jack says that he can't remember his mother, the person that created him. So in the movie, he calls Dorothy mom. Or he wants to. He asks to call Dorothy mom because he just wants to call someone mom. But in the book, not, not only does Tip make him, but it turns out that Tip is Ozma. And yeah. she she was turned into Tip and is changed back by the end of the book. Yeah, and, and they mention that in the or they, they allude to that in the movie because when he sees yeah. Ozma, he's like, Mom! And he, he wants Dorothy to test his head to see if it's moldy because it's a carved pumpkin. Yeah. And in the book, the head goes moldy all the time and he keeps having to carve new ones. Yeah. And in the book, they they bury the heads like in a, in a graveyard. graveyard for, yeah. well, for pumpkin heads his, which is really morbid his his occupation in oz is that he's a pumpkin farmer and he grows pumpkins to give himself new heads yeah so, that's i mean it's sort of crazy when when you think about it yeah. I, I had no idea about any of that and he's like sort of watching this yeah and in the movie he facilitates the defeat of the of the uh of the gnome king because like i said belina is hiding in his head for like a good third of the movie and when the gnome king is like in the, the the climax of the movie when the gnome king is attacking everybody he picks up jack and he's going to eat him and then uh, belina's in his head and she lays an egg because that's the sort of thing about belina is that she's not very good at laying eggs and dorothy tells her in the beginning of the movie that if she doesn't start laying eggs that aunt m is going to stew her up and uh so she finally lays an egg and it drops into the gnome king's mouth out of jack's head and kills the gnome king Poison. 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 
Now, the next character, if you would, is... He's a composite character, Yeah, sort of. he's a sort of weird composite. He's called the Gump. And he's puppeted by Lyle Conway and Steve Norrington and voiced by Lyle Conway. And Steve Norrington was actually the director of the film Blade, hmm. which is Interesting. weird. And Lyle Conway was Ryan uh, Rickard from Blade. Okay. So, and yeah, he, he did special effects for the 88 Blob remake and, you know, had some other stuff. Oh, he was a, a creature designer for Dark Crystal and and did some other stuff. And the Gump is a weird character because it's one that they literally create. They strap two, uh, they strap two couches together and then they put some, like, palm fronds on him for wings. And then it's they... very st- weird. They strap a Gump head. A Gump is like a Oz Moose it's like a moose yeah. or something from Oz. So they strap a gun. And he's head. like, oh, what happened to me? My last memory was being in the forest and hearing a loud noise. And then I woke up here. Yeah. And they sprinkled. The, they they <laughs> sprinkled. like he was murdered in yeah. the forest. And then <laughs> they sprinkled the, uh, the, the powder of life, which actually takes place after I think can what can be argued is the scariest scene in the entire movie. Oh, yeah. It's so the two scariest scenes. In so the Dorothy. Movie, yeah. yeah. Dorothy comes up with this plan and she tells TikTok and Jack what to do because they're all locked in the tower and Jack has arms that are long enough to reach out and unlatch the the door that they're all locked in the tower so she goes down actually it's just Jack and Dorothy that are locked in the tower she goes down she winds up TikTok because he is stopped before you know as she was getting thrown in the tower he's like I'll save you and then he yeah. like, sends him upstairs with Jack to put together Gump yeah while she's downstairs and she's going grabbing to the, the powder of life yeah and, the key. And, and jack says that it's in it's in the the case cap, 31 the one with her original head yes so she walks in there and there's a headless body sleeping in a bed and she walks through this long aisle with, with 30 other severed heads that in are glass, sleeping asleep yeah in sleeping well first she has to glass yeah she has to steal the ruby key from from Mombi, and then she goes and unlocks case 31 and it's like a fucking closet and you can see that the powder of life is there but then her original head is just sort of shoved in there if like a look, football if you look really carefully in that closet there's a bunch of like severed baby heads and like oh. creepy dude it's so this yeah it's crazy this it, is the super creepy this is the scary part and this, so dorothy opens up and as she's going to grab the thing the can, the other head wakes up. The head that's in the closet with it, it wakes screaming up. screaming and... Yeah. like the, the head's like Dorothy it's terrifying and then all the other heads start screaming it's just right, yeah and, and she runs away and then you have crazy. a headless you have a headless body that's running trying to catch Dorothy and then picks up the head that was screaming puts it on and starts chasing after her and then they sprinkle the they sprinkle the powder of life on Gump and they fly out of there and it's like Gump leads a Gump leads a tortured and horrible existence. It can tell that at one point when they're flying, it can tell that the that the ropes are coming loose. So it can and like his body's falling apart. You, it can feel he his has body memory of his apart. own death from yeah. before. 
Like, and then his uh, couch body gets eaten by the Gnome King and at one just, point. He's just the head knight. And I read that that's, that's how he exists. He exists as a head on a trophy board. That's like, awful. Like, that's the rest of the time. I don't think he's a big character in the rest of it, but it doesn't... I don't remember him saying that he got another body at any point. Yeah, it's very it's it's very weird. The next character is a Scarecrow, which, you know, from the original story. And, and it, it's played by a man named Justin Case. And I thought, no, that can't be real. No, his name is really Justin Case. And he's the mime from Superman 3, and that's about all he's done. And and essentially, he is what they're trying to get. They're trying to get to the Scarecrow, who's been kidnapped by the Gnome King, and they end up at the Gnome King's place to, to, and they have to go through this sort of trial to get him, and... I have to say that the the costuming for the... Fucking terrifying! It's I'm terrible. Sorry. It's He's, it's terrifying. Instead of instead of like in the original, you know, the movie that came out 46 years earlier, uh, where you had a guy in makeup with like with with uh, he looked like a scarecrow. Instead of that, you have like a sort of weird rubber cartoony, mask. Yeah, you have a weird cartoony costume and a rubber mask with very little articulation. So he mostly stands there with either his mouth wide open or and closed. his eyes not blinking. Yeah. It's creepy. Yeah, Super and I don't know. Creepy. I don't know why they went with that, especially given the fact that they changed really the 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 way that all the other characters looked because they they showed which the, is fine. Yeah, but... they showed the Tin Man at one point, and obviously it wasn't like a guy in a suit. It was a puppet that had very thin arms and a like very thin. It, it There's was just... one or two scenes where the Tin Man actually moves, and that is portrayed by Deep Roy, by the way, the Oompa Loompa for the Charlie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remakes, and we and the talked about him as Teeny and... Weenie from yeah. Neverending Story. Yeah, exactly. But but like why they chose that? Why they chose to make him that way instead of like in an actual like a person? I I don't know. Yeah. So the girl at the hospital that you discussed, the blonde one, mm-hmm. is actually Princess Ozma, and she's played by Emma Ridley. Who was in a single episode of Boy Meets World, but really nothing else? And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna, yeah. not gonna go much into this. There's, and there's a character who played a couple roles. He was the lead wheeler that they like kidnap, or they didn't kidnap him. They capture him, and he takes them to Prince uh, to uh, yes. Princess he's also Mommy. the Nurse Wilson's uh, orderly in the yeah. hospital, and the gnome messenger. There, like, there's there's some claymation gnome. Uh, in the rock, so it's like the messenger going to see what's going on and going to tell the Gnome King. He I pl- love what he's most famous for, and that's as the Noid from the Domino's Pizza advertising campaign. If you don't remember the Noid, it was Domino's. It was Domino's advertising campaign. It was called Annoy the Noid, where you were the Noid would ruin Domino's pizzas. I think that there was a video game about that too. Oh yeah, no, there was a there was a video game. There was a like I think a short lived cartoon series or something. Yeah, and he, uh, a he one off. Yeah, in the in the show, the he voice would just go the, like. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, yeah, he's the voice is so creepy. It, it's played by a guy named Pons Mar, and he was also in The Golden Child and Masters of the Universe and worked as a puppeteer for Dinosaurs, the TV series. So it's sort of weird. And there's a couple other characters that are... There's some of the other momby, mombies. We don't need to yeah, go into that. there's a bunch of different heads. Yeah, and and I put I did some notes for it. Like, uh, the policeman that gets like a five-second brief, like whatever is is bruce bow and i only put him in there because he's general reekin from empire strikes back he's the commander at the hoff base mm. so and uh, but that you know that, that's about it so we don't really need to go too far into that I, I will say that that the the reviews for this movie were were sort of mixed in that the people who read the source material really liked this movie. Yeah, because it's, it's a but huge... But most of the credits hadn't, and so they did not like it. Well, because if you think about it, it's a huge departure. So I'll just really briefly... 
because we talked a lot about the story and what ends up happening is Dorothy, when they're in with the Gnome King, so you have Dorothy, TikTok, Jack, and the Gump who are in the Gnome King's palace and he, they're looking for the scarecrow. And he's like, well, I took all the, the, I took all the emeralds from the Emerald City because everything from the ground belongs to me. And I took the scarecrow because he stole from me. And so she, he gives them a chance that if they can find the scarecrow in, in his, uh, essentially his, his curio case yeah. of a room, he's turned the scarecrow into a tchotchke. And if they can fi- figure out, they each get three chances to guess. They have to which... touch the object and say Oz. Yeah. And if they touch the right one and say Oz and the scarecrow comes but if and they... appears, then... yeah. Then he's saved. And if not, then they get turned into a tchotchke. Yeah, if they if they miss three times, then they get turned into one themselves. So they progress they systematically go through and every one of them every one of them screws up. And then when it's TikTok's time, he goes in and then one of the gnome messengers comes over and is like whispers something into his ear. And he's like, Oh, apparently the metal man has stopped moving and is just sitting in the middle. And he sends Dorothy in to go wind him up. TikTok, you're all wound up. What's the matter? Why did you stop? <laughs> It was my way of getting you in here. Pretend that you are winding me up anyway. I have an idea that may save us. I have one guess left. And if I guess incorrectly, you can watch and see what I am changed into. That may give you a clue. What a good idea. And then he did it as a ruse. TikTok did. He said that once, like I only have one uh, choice left, but... If I choose with you in the room, then maybe you can see what I turn into and then... Uh, and use that as a clue to figure it out. Yeah. And Which doesn't help her anyways. Yeah, because but... he just gets, like, the lights flash. He can't see where he went. And, and then he's gone. Yeah. And I had I should mention that the, the Gnome King is wearing the ruby slippers, which augment his power. That's why you can do all this stuff anyways. Yeah, because yeah. Dorothy lost them on her trip back to... Uh, or uh, back to Kansas and she mentions that earlier on right. in the movie so eventually Dorothy figures out that people from Oz when they get turned into tchotchkes they get turned into green ones so she figures out who the uh, who the uh, which one is the the scarecrow and then she goes through and she saves finds, the other friends except for except for TikTok because then uh, when the Gnome King figures out that she figured out the the trick then that's when he goes crazy and starts attacking and eats the the gump's body and then is about to eat is about to eat Jack when Jack when the Belina lays an egg in him and then whatever. So yeah. so essentially she gets the slippers and she wishes for Oz to come back and every and all is yeah, right. Yeah, everybody the world. everybody uh, everybody is turned to stone because that's what the Gnome King did. So everybody in Oz gets turned back to normal. Oz gets back to normal and Ozma is able to come out of her banishment or whatever. And they take mommy's powers away yeah. and and that's that's, that's And that's the it. story. And and so if you take it from the original 1939 Wizard of Oz, it was a fairly even in its darker parts, it was a fairly lighthearted and not too serious. Like you never really felt like any of the characters were in real danger. But you do here. Yeah. And and it's maybe it's a little bit more off-putting because the character, the, the actress playing Dorothy Feruza Balk is 
very obviously like 10 years old or 11 years old, as opposed to Judy Garland, who was like 15 or 16. So the danger maybe seems more dangerous because it's happening to a small child rather than like a teenager. Well, one reviewer from Canada named Jay Scott said the protagonists were too creepy and weird for viewers to relate or sympathize with. Well, Jack uh, is that, kind of prote- he is kind of uh, yeah. an odd-looking character, especially to the gump. You're going to root for a, a hodgepodge mishmash head on a couch. Yeah, exactly. And he says, "Quote: Dorothy's friends are as weird as her enemies, which is faithful to the original Oz books, but turns out not to be a virtue on film, where the eerie has a tendency to remain eerie no matter how often we're told it's not." Yeah, and I would say that 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 is a fair complaint. Uh, that that it's almost the story is almost too weird to be made into a children's b- film without some serious altering to really forcefully not Al- make it weird and creepy and altering in context. Yeah. yeah, and I and they didn't do that. They they stayed pretty faithful to the original, which is good, but at the same time made it a sort of weird weird movie. Because okay, you know? here's here's the thing you have to understand about Frank Baum and and what he was trying to do with The Wizard of Oz is he essentially was had been reading like he was an he was an author he was a writer he was an actor a screenwriter what he was trying to do with oz was he was trying to create an american fairy tale because he was he was a big avid reader of stuff like hans christian anderson the Grimm brothers and and, and it, was knew- a, it was it was eighteen it was the 1890s yeah. early 1900s during and the he, sort of rise of the of american ex- exceptionalism the sort yeah. of manifest destiny of 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 the early american uh you know explore explorative times yeah and so he wanted to create these stories that were essentially american fairy tales that wouldn't be wouldn't be drawn to wouldn't be drawn or compared to like I said, Hans Christian Andersen or Brothers Grimm. And he, I feel like he successfully did that. He created worlds, he created mythology, he created characters. And like a lot of the characters in those other fairy tales, they're weird and fantastical and gruesome. And, and sometimes and, messy and don't always make sense. And that, that, so he accomplished that. Yeah, exactly. But but translating that into a film. Especially a children's, children's film. Children's film. It, it is weird. I, I don't think it's bad. No, I, just, I don't think so either. No, it's just, it is a sort of weird thing to, to see. Um, that, that's the biggest yeah. criticism that you will hear about this movie is that it's too dark for children. Yeah, it's, it's too weird. It's too dark. It's bleak. too, yeah. it's too gruesome. And especially given the beginning part, it's like, it's one thing in the original wizard of Oz to be swept up in a tornado. It's another thing entirely to be sent to an insane asylum and to be subjected to shock therapy. Cause at one point when she's there, she hears someone just go like, Bleh! like she hears a scream she's like what's that it's like oh it's another patient like yeah w- what yeah like, like here we're gonna put these electrodes on your brain and uh, you know on your skull and we're gonna electrocute you and i'm surprised they didn't bust out the she comes out at, like in the beginning when she's uh in her room sitting in this bleak room and nurse ratchet opens up and uh she she says oh you need to come with me and so she comes with her out into the hallway she's like sit on the bed lay down and they start strapping her with leather straps into the bed and then she she asks like why are you strapping me to the bed lie down i'd like to sit up if i may what did your aunt tell you to do what you told me miss wilson then lie down She's like, she's like, didn't your aunt tell you to listen to us? And yeah, she's but like, yes, and I can lay down. I'm like, uh, okay. I kind of like how sassy she was at that point because she goes, why are you strapping me to the bed? She says, so you don't fall off. And she said, I came all the way from the farm and the buggy and didn't fall off. 
despite the critical sort of, I mean, the, the sort of critical mixed review of this movie, this movie is like a cult classic for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it it's, it's, maybe it's because it's terrifying. Maybe it's because it made some weird impression on a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of Gen Xers and really young, uh, millennial or really like early millennials that it's just sort of a terrifying fever dream of of a movie it is and and to see a little kid go through that i mean it's like it's like uh or oz it's like labyrinth and it's like dark crystal where those are kind of terrifying fever dreams of movies too and they're just they're they're ostensibly for kids but you don't know if the kids should be watching them. I, I don't know. It's weird. And it's kind of interesting be- that it became a cult classic because you found out something really interesting about how much the VHS cost for this. Yeah. At the time in 1985, the list price was seventy nine ninety five for a VHS. And it, actually getting a hold of this movie is not super easy. Although, you know, with the internet it is. But until fairly recently, it wasn't that easy to get a hold of. It was reissued in 92 by Disney with an alternate cover art in 2015. They did a very limited Blu-ray release for their Disney Movie Club only. And for quite some time, it was not an easy movie to get a hold of. Like, at all. Uh, there, There's... I think at the end of the day, people sort of gravitated towards this movie because it was sort of the fantastical weird thing that, that they maybe might not have been allowed to watch had their parents not seen Disney slapped on the cover. Yeah. And, and you know, in some ways it was, it was maybe the first sort of weird or scary movie that a lot of kids of our generation got to watch, I think. And, and so maybe that's why it's such a cult classic. It's not a bad movie either by any means, but there's just not really a normal place for this movie as a genre. Yeah, and and I feel like most people, and you know, I don't know why I'm saying this because I I have nothing to back this up. This is pure speculation on my part. How dare? How dare? Much I, dare. I feel like most people's exposure to the actual stories from Oz is almost entirely the 1939 film, and then Wicked, and then the play Wicked. And there's literally dozens of books that people probably don't read. And these are small children's books. These are like, you know, hundred and something page books written in, in, uh, in small pages. So it's not like, it's not like it's, it's heavy lifting. You know, it's, it's like when you, when you pick up old children's books that, that maybe you hadn't read, like any of the, any of the Winnie the Pooh books or, uh, like Alice in Wonderland, those type of books, they're not very long. And these books, I think, are even shorter. So you have books that tell stories. You have books that are that are about certain characters. Uh, later on in life, different people wrote and continued on the tradition of writing these books. So I don't know. It, it's weird. It's like a it's it's a story that I'm sure some people are aware of in terms of the characters, and maybe the reason why many people didn't go to see this movie besides its dark tones was it it wasn't involving characters that they were familiar with because they hadn't read the books. So they didn't know who the hell Jack Pumpkinhead was or TikTok or the Gump or who Mombi was or the Gnome King. And they're just like, what is this? So they're just, you know, I, I can almost see it being like a, like I always go back to this where back before I knew what was, what, uh, Futurama was when it first came on it was played after the Simpsons on on Fox and I remember thinking this is just a rip off of the Simpsons 
This is stupid. I had and you're no... like, wait a second. And I, well, at the time, I didn't realize that the same guy, because, you know, I never sat and watched the credits. I never realized that the same guy who made The Simpsons made Futurama. And I'm like, the characters are all the same. They're just playing off of, I was all bitter about it. They're just playing off of our nostalgia. You know, the same thing that they did at the beginning of Deep Space Nine, where they had the Enterprise crew for the first, like, three episodes of Deep Space Nine to show, like, this is Star Trek 2. And, and, like, I I feel like maybe some, some of that happened with this movie it's like oh dorothy gale we get it auntie m and and uncle henry but then who the hell are these other characters this isn't what i paid for this isn't what i yeah, wanted a little buyer's remorse maybe and i think again that goes back to if you read the books maybe you would have really enjoyed this movie and if you hadn't you might have been more confused at the time than anything else oh yeah the, the movie actually started its development way back in 1980 the the director walter murch sat in a, in a sort of brainstorming session with uh, Disney Productions chief Tom uh, Wilhite. And it was said, quote, it was just a fishing expedition on both of our part, uh, on both of our parts. But one of the questions that Wilhite uh, asked was, what are you interested in that you think we at Disney might also be interested in? And I said, another Oz story. And Tom... Uh, Wilhite sort of straightened up in his chair because it turned out that unbeknownst to Merch, Disney owned the rights to all the Oz stories and they were really interested in doing something with them because the copyright was about to expire within the next couple of years. So yeah. they had to enter production on this movie within a certain amount of time. Or Hence, else it would jump back into the public domain. Which it ended up doing anyways afterwards, yeah. but you know, it is what it is. The, the, the sort of process that this movie went through uh, Will Height ended up being replaced by Richard Berger and the budget for the movie like drastically increased. And when shooting started for the movie, merch like fell way, way behind schedule. Mm-hmm. And due to pressure from the studio uh, at, during the time of the making of the movie, merch ended up getting fired as the director for from this movie for a short period of time until George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola actually came in and supported merch in discussions with the studio and that's how he got rehired back onto the job <laughs> that's fi- crazy think fired about that and rehired you get fired from a movie and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola sort of at the height of their career walk into the room on your behalf at Disney and like rehire this guy but but rehire him this is george lucas and francis ford coppola you're gonna rehire this guy right like yeah. oh, okay michael eisner was like uh, let's get it done guys yeah let, let's let's do it well that was like right around eisner's uh, time right yeah. uh no it would have been after no no yeah it would have been uh during during eisner's time because he came in post black cauldron yeah yeah, uh, end up, of Black Cauldron. Up until yeah. what, like ninety eight or two thousand, something like that. He was there. Yeah, for, he's two thousand five. Yeah, he was there for a while. Yeah. So it, at the end of the day, I, I think. Uh, oh, can we just mention? I, I show this to Eleanor, uh, who's let my, me guess, my daughter. She loved it. She did because I have a dark, <laughs> weird kid, and it's great. Uh, so my daughter is four, and she loved this movie. In fact, we watched it last night, and then. She wanted to watch it again this morning. And I said, no, because I have something else we got to watch for the show. <laughs> so you're going to watch that instead. But she wasn't happy about it first, but then enjoyed that too. So I, I think this movie does sort of speak to, to little kids. I know that she liked that the main character was a girl, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen a very often. Girl. A young girl. So one, that doesn't happen very often. Two, it's just weird and crazy enough 
that the kids will feel like they're getting away with watching something weird and crazy, mm-hmm. but it's not so weird and crazy that I feel like parents should keep their kids from seeing it. Mm-hmm. I think that parent parents in general of today maybe sort of overprotect their kids. Oh yeah, and, no, we've talked and, about that before, and we've talked about this before. Yeah, and with the sort of helicoptering and over worrying about children maybe too much. And not allowing them to be scared a little and to explore the world and feel even the most minute artificial sense of danger is like not even encouraged. And this movie, I think, allows kids to sort of get a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. I I would, at the end of the day, recommend this. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, it it had been a long time since I watched it and watching it through, it was... It was shocking. Like, even to my, you know, 35-year-old eyes, like, parts of it were shocking. It was entertaining. I laughed at some parts of it. Uh, I was frustrated by some parts of it. Creeped out a little creeped bit. Creeped out. Definitely creeped out. I remember the the the, uh, the wheelers being super creepy. They and still I are. That mombie scene with all the heads, that is still... That terrifying. is still terrifying as an adult, just seeing, like, a, like a, a headless body walking around. It might be also that, that we have those early memories sort of ingrained in us, too. So we carry that forward as we watch this. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where some of the creep comes from. I don't know. Yeah. No, I but, would. I would recommend it too. I think it's. I think it's worth a watch. It's. It's a. It's a. It's a darker Disney film. It deals with. It deals with a very American. I, I like the idea of having having our own mythologies and our own and our own stories. It deals with a very American story that was created by an American author. And I'm not trying to be like a nationalist jingoist, but like like you know you have you have like. The, the Scandinavia and and the the uh, you know, Finland and and Switzerland and and all those countries not Switzerland but Sweden and they have their Norse mythology and you've got the same thing with like Native Americans have their mythology and you've Central got Europe and Central Europe South and Africa and Egyptians and, you know, and Greeks but but yeah you have these you have these stories that are uniquely American and I think it it's worth it's worth it to just to 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 look at them and to at least give them a chance. Yeah. Granted, the author's problematic and a but there's complex lots... figure, but, but you know, you can't escape that. And I, I, it's like, I always have a hard time saying like, well, this, this particular person is problematic at best problematic. Yeah. Uh, and at worst, a, like a total monster. And, and yes, that is the case, but should that take away from the work that the artist themselves created. I don't think so. It, and it, yeah, again, it's always sort of problematic. You're like, well, I don't want to support this person because blah, blah, blah. And I get that. I totally, truly do. I just don't know if, if I feel like, if I feel like the art itself should be, uh, bad people, cre- dis- bad people create good, good things stuff. and good people create bad things in every mix in between. Yeah. I just don't know. I, I don't think it should take away from the fact that it's interesting story. Yeah. It's interesting mythos and it's a good, well-written story in mythos and, and just leave it at that. Yeah. And, and you could discuss the, the history of the writer and the problems they're in. Yeah. No, I would recommend it. I, I would recommend, uh, Checking it out, checking out the story, and uh, definitely this movie. If if for no if for nothing else than to you know remember how freaked out you were when you saw it the first time, or to be freshly freaked out if you've never seen it before. But ultimately, I would recommend it. Chris would recommend it. Eleanor would recommend it. And yeah, 
you should you should go check it out. You can download or download it on Amazon or rent it from Amazon if you if you so choose. You can find it in some other places. Um, but ultimately, I think that probably does it for this episode. Yeah, I think that'll do it. Yeah, so uh, if you want to talk... Thanks, Sean, for requesting this Yeah, you guys are so welcome. If you guys want to check us out or talk about this episode or any other episode, you can check us out on Facebook at Childhood Remastered or Twitter, or Instagram, all of that. Just look up Childhood Remastered. You'll find us. You can go to childhoodremastered.com and find all of our social media, all of our ways to contact us. You'll find links to uh, these uh, on our on our music page. You'll find the links to John Howarth, who we thank for the use of our intro music. It's called Nascent. You can find that link to his SoundCloud on our music. You page. can find us on Google and Stitcher and you know wherever iTunes, you find where, your yeah. podcast. If you use another method and we're not there, let us know. We'll we'd be happy to to yeah. post and ourselves there too. Give us five stars. Why not? Yeah, let's do it. Make it happen. Yeah, we're part of the ACPN Podcast Network. It's at acpnet.net. Because that's how we roll. That's how we roll. Uh, you can check out a bunch of other shows on that network. There's a bunch of sort of nostalgia-y shows uh, reminiscing about movies and TV shows of the past as well. Uh, a couple other more niche shows about Disney, about... Uh, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. TV, Adult, film, Adult Swim. Uh, yeah, all kinds kind of, of stuff. stuff. Yeah. So you can you can check all that stuff out at acpnet.net. And uh, if you've got any suggestions for us, feel free to send us an email or contact us through our socials. We even have a phone number up there if you want to leave us a voice message, which we will play on the air if you want us to. But... Uh, That'll do it this week. Yeah, that'll do it. I really enjoyed uh, reliving my childhood nightmares about this movie. And, and we look I forward to you, more childhood nightmares. Yeah, I hope you did too. So until next time, this is Sean. And Chris. And this has been your Childhood Remastered. We will see you next time. <laughs>